Just take a moment to pray. Father God in heaven, we do indeed come before you now, asking you that in your goodness, you would help us to see things that we cannot see on our own. Uh, By your Holy Spirit, we would be able to hear and understand things that we haven't before. Father, please use your word now to speak to each one of us here. In your name. Amen. Uh, What is the meaning of life? There you go. That's a good question for a Sunday morning. What is, the que- what is the meaning of life? If you're a fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, then you already know the answer, because the answer to the great question of life, the universe, and everything is? Oh, there you go. Wow. You see, I'm not very satisfied with that answer. In Douglas Adams' book, it took seven and a half million years for the computer to come up with it. I turned to my computer this week, to see if it could come up with anything better and hopefully a little bit faster too, although my computer's not that good. Success.com, a classic website to go to when you're pondering life's big questions, told me that the meaning of life is whatever you want it to be. I was intrigued. I wanted to know more, so I clicked on the link, but unfortunately, success.com servers were down. Not very successful. Couldn't get any further than that. Uh, But maybe you are pondering the big questions in life this morning. Uh, Maybe you're asking, what is the meaning of my life? Uh, Maybe you think the purpose of life is being happy, feeling good, having as little sadness as possible. Uh, Maybe you think the purpose of life is being comfortable, uh, having a nice house, having nice children, and having a nice holiday. Maybe you think that's setting the bar a little low. You want the best house. You want the best children, or or maybe no children at all. And you want to never have to go on holiday again, so you want to retire early. Isn't that right, everyone who's retired? Life's just one big holiday. (laughs) Or maybe you think that the purpose of life is to help others, to do good. Maybe you think that life has no purpose at all that we live, and then we're gone. Or or maybe you're sure that life has to have a purpose, but you're just as sure that you've got no idea what it is yet. On the 25th of November, 1647, a group of men gave their answer to the question. They'd only been working on their answer for four years (laughs) They'd been appointed by Parliament to write a short summary of Christian beliefs, and they published their work that day. This is how they posed the question. They asked, what is the chief end of man? What is the point of humanity's existence? What is the meaning of life? Their answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The passage we're looking at this morning is one of the places where they found their answer, that the meaning of life, the purpose of each of our lives is to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. In John's Gospel so far, we've seen increasingly Jesus be rejected by the Jews. Please do uh, open up your Bibles back to John chapter 12, uh, verse 20. If you have them, it would be great for you to be able to uh, follow along and check that what I'm saying is actually in the Bible. In John chapter 20, some Greeks, some people who aren't Jews come, and they say that they want to see Jesus. This follows on from verse 19 that we saw last week, the previous verse, where the Pharisees say, look, the whole world has gone after him. And it seems like they're right. Well, we don't see these Greeks again. We don't know if they met Jesus. But that's not John's point. Because John wants us, his readers, to see that the hour for Jesus' glory has come. Do you see that in verse 23? Please look down with me. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Five times so far in John's Gospel, we've been told that the hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for this climactic event that the whole Gospel is hurtling towards. But, but here, things change. Jesus says, it is now. The time has come. And Jesus says he is about to be glorified. What does that mean? Well, that's just what Jesus goes on to tell us over these next verses. And the surprise is, it's not going to look very glorious. It's not going to look anything like we might expect. Because Jesus tells us that he will be glorified in death. Jesus paints a picture in verse 24 that would be part of everyday life for his listeners. They relied on sowing seed and then eating its fruit in order to survive, but it's a little bit further removed for us. So why don't you imagine a grain of wheat? It's just a seed. A grain of wheat attached to a long stalk. It looks golden. The color is deep, especially in contrast to the blue sky behind it. It looks bright and vibrant. It looks wonderful. It waves to and fro in the wind. It's alive. It looks glorious. But it's only when it falls to the ground and is buried and goes underneath the soil and is trampled and in that sense dies, that it produces many more seeds, but potentially whole fields of wheat. That really is glorious. And Jesus is saying that that is a little bit like what will happen to him. He will be glorified, and he means that he will die. And then he will rise again, and then he will ascend to heaven, all of this will be his glorification, but here in this passage, the primary focus is on his death. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus briefly goes on to say that those seeds he produces, the fruit of his death, must follow the same path that he does. Just like Jesus, they must not have a focus on themselves. They must look elsewhere. They must value other things above their own life. And as they die, like the Lord Jesus, they too will gain eternal life and honor from the Father. Their path follows exactly that of their Savior. 
But Jesus also tells us that his impending glorification troubles his soul. We see that in verse 27. The glorification Jesus is about to undergo causes within him a deep emotional reaction. John Stott helpfully says that the horror of what was about to happen to Jesus led to him, just for a moment, recoiling from it. It's not that he stops. No, we see in verse 22, he's resolute. Look down with me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus certainly doesn't run. He doesn't stop. But he's very aware of the terrible nature of what lies ahead, of what he is about to go through. So much so that he is troubled within himself, in his soul. And just at this point, when he's grappling with what is about to come, the Lord Jesus shows us what it is to live out the true meaning of life. Just look down at verse 28. He prays, Father, glorify your name. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Here, Jesus lives that out as he prays, Father, glorify your name. We sometimes emphasize that Jesus came to die for us. Of course, that is true. But if that's all we ever say, then that's a very self-centered view of the gospel. Jesus' death for us is inextricably linked with the fact that he came to die in order to glorify the name of his Father. We must never put ourselves at the center of the gospel story. And as Jesus prays, the Father responds. A voice comes from heaven. See the second half of verse 28? I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's, it's at significant times in the Gospels that voices come from heaven. At Jesus' baptism, at Jesus' transfiguration, and then here again. The name of God has been glorified throughout all of Jesus' earthly ministry so far. And it will be glorified again now that the hour is here. But in verse 29, we see that the people are deaf to God's voice. Some think it was thunder from an incoming storm. I hope it was cloudy. Others thought that they could just about make out a voice, maybe that of an angel, but they had no idea what it said. And then here in this passage, the third thing John shows us, as we see that the hour for Jesus' glory has come, is that his glorification is going to come at the cross. I don't know about you, but one of the joys of this time of year for me is being able to get organized again, uh, getting new calendars up on the wall and getting rid of old ones that, that have some mistakes on them, it, opening up a fresh diary. Being married for eight years really has rubbed off on me. 
My sister-in-law buys me a desk calendar every year. Uh, This year, you will not be surprised to hear, it's a Liverpool Football Club Heroes calendar. So I have three European Cups looking at me every day as I do my work. Uh, But that one's just for show. Where the action happens is on my Google calendar. It's colour-coded. It it, it syncs up with Sarah's. That's really helpful because hers is the one that's right. (laughs) And it sends, there was quite a buzz around there just then. And it sends me reminders half an hour before I'm meant to be anywhere, which is great as long as my next appointment is only half an hour away. And it's a bit like the arrival of the Greeks at the start of this passage has triggered a reminder on Jesus' calendar. The date has been in the diary for a long time, but now he knows that the hour has come. So just look at verse 31. Jesus says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus says a critical time for the world has arrived because all of humanity has sinned, rebelled against God's rule. No one has lived their lives perfectly living out the purpose they were intended to, glorifying God. And we all stand in judgment before God for that. And through Jesus' death, one can be forgiven and restored to God. But rejecting what he has done leaves us facing judgment. So Jesus says this is the pivotal moment in history. Now. And Jesus' death is not only where personal sin has been forgiven, but where all the forces of evil have been defeated And then just look down with me at verse 32. We read Jesus say, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John says, He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. John doesn't want us to miss what it is that Jesus is saying. He wants us to be sure that when Jesus talks about being lifted up, He is absolutely talking about being lifted up on a cross. And in so doing, he will draw all people to himself. That's all types of people. Verse 20 introduced us to Greeks. Here, in context, we can see that anyone can come to Jesus. So what do we see in these few verses? We see that the hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. The glorification of Jesus troubles his soul because he knows that he is going to die on a cross. But we read that in so doing, he will produce many seeds and he will draw all types of people to himself. It's an astonishing and astounding explanation of the word glorified, not what we expect. Death on a cross was so shameful that no Roman citizen could be executed that way. Cicero, the great orator of ancient Rome, said this, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. But here we are told that the crucifixion of Jesus was not where he was shamed, but where he was glorified. 
and where he fulfilled the meaning of life, glorifying the name of his Father. In verse 34, the crowd listening to Jesus show that they've connected some of the dots. They know that the promised Messiah is meant to live forever. So therefore, how can Jesus say that he will die? Jesus doesn't really answer their question. Uh, These questions have been asked and answered and asked and answered for 12 chapters as we've seen throughout John's Gospel. Uh, What he does say in verse 35 and 36, just notice that five times he says the word light. He's already said that he is the light of the world. And in verse 35 he says people who don't have the light are like people walking around in darkness, not knowing where they're going. And so verse 36, let me read Jesus' challenge to them. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Would they believe? How do they respond to Jesus' challenge? Well, we see in the rest of the passage three reactions to what Jesus has said. And the first is utter unbelief. Every Christmas growing up, we used to get the latest edition of the Guinness Book of Records. I used to love flicking through the pages. But then the TV show came out. Can you remember that? Not Record Breakers with Chris Askabuski, but the official Guinness World Records show. I guess that I didn't really believe that a man could possibly hop on a pogo stick for 47 days straight until I saw it. Seeing is believing. Well, verse 37 says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Despite all they had seen, despite all the miracles that Jesus had performed in front of them, they didn't believe And John then quotes two Old Testament passages, both from Isaiah the prophet, to explain why they didn't believe. The first is in verse 38. That's from Isaiah 53, where the prophet foretells the death of the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus. John quotes verse 38. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's not a surprise that people don't believe in Jesus. That was prophesied at exactly the same time that his death was. And then the second quote in verse 40 is from Isaiah chapter 6. And that says that the reason that they couldn't, just notice not didn't, but couldn't believe, is that, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. God himself has given them over to their unbelief. There's a tension here in this passage between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Human responsibility is emphasized again in verse 47 and 48, if you just put your eyes down there. Verse 47, individuals are responsible for rejecting the word of Jesus. Jesus has come to save the world. But if they reject him, they will be judged on the last day based on their actions, their rejection of his words. 
And we keep that intention with what verse 40 shows us, that God blinds eyes and hardens hearts that are already and are continuing to turn away from him. God is sovereign over unbelief as he is over belief. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, then it might be tempting to think that if only you were to see the miracles of Jesus for yourself, you would definitely believe in him. Maybe if if you were born then, or if Jesus was to be alive now. Well, that doesn't seem to be the way that it worked when Jesus was alive. They were there, and their response to all that he does is utter unbelief. And in contrast to that, Isaiah prophesied before Jesus, 700 years before he was born. And yet verse 41 tells us that Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Despite the fact that Jesus hadn't even been born yet, Isaiah foresaw his glory and believed. And while Isaiah believed before, we can see what Jesus has done afterwards. That's the whole reason that John has written this gospel. We've looked multiple times at John's purpose in chapter 20, verse 31, where John says, these things, this book, these signs are written that you, the readers, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John has given you, as a reader of his gospel this morning, an opportunity to do what so many of those who actually did meet and see Jesus with their own eyes did not, to believe in him. So if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, Jesus asks, will you believe in him? There's a Christianity Explored course here on Thursday night. Uh, 20 of us met this Thursday. It'd be great to see you uh, this coming Thursday. And you can explore a little bit more about the Christian faith as we look at the person of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. I'll be uh, just on the door at the end of the service. I'd love to talk to you more if today you would like to believe in Jesus. Uh, Utter unbelief is one reaction. Uh, The second reaction is hard uh, half-hearted disbelief. It seems at first, in verse 42, that this second group is going to contrast with those who don't believe. Uh, Look at verse 42. We've just read about those who don't believe. And John says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. That sounds positive, doesn't it? But as we've seen before in John's Gospel, not all belief is the right kind of belief. Verse 42 again. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. This is half-hearted disbelief. These people are so afraid of the social and religious consequences of believing in Jesus that they kept it a secret. And while this is one reason, in verse 43, John gives a damning indictment on the ultimate reason for their response. Uh, The Greek word translated praise twice in verse 43, 
is exactly the same word translated throughout the whole rest of the passage as glory. If you have an ESV translation this morning, then you'll see that your verse 43 already has that. And I think that's a much better translation given the whole chapter's focus on glory. So let me read verse 43 again. For they loved human glory more than glory from God. And therein lies the problem. It's not just that they were fearful. Ultimately, it's that they were living for their own glory, not the glory of God. Uh, Utter unbelief, half-hearted disbelief, and finally, the third reaction is total devotion. We don't actually see anyone respond in this way in John chapter 12. But Jesus shows us what it looked like. We've already seen it back in verse 25 and 26. Please do look at verse 25 and 26. And let me read those verses again. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. The one who is totally devoted to Jesus will follow him. Will live a life like him that's totally for the glory of God. That's what Jesus says. And this might be hard for us to hear this morning. Because total devotion is not just contrasted with utter unbelief. It's not that half-hearted disbelief is a middle way. No, total devotion has two opposites in this passage. Unbelief and half-heartedness. Because the question posed in this passage is whose glory are you living for? What is the purpose of your life? If you believe in Jesus here this morning, if you're a Christian, then that's the question that this passage is asking us. And the life of total devotion that Jesus outlines here is so countercultural that it's actually unbelievable. It's, it's the exact opposite of everything that we hear day in and day out in the world. But because it's predicated on following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, whose definition of being glorified was that he died on a cross. Humanly speaking, the most shameful thing ever. That is Jesus' perspective on true glory. In light of that, in light of what the Lord Jesus has done for us as Christians, are we wholeheartedly devoted to him? Are we living life like he did, only, ever, and always for the glory of God? Or are we half-hearted, living for our own glory.
Let me give you a couple of examples. What might it look like at work? At work, living for human glory, our own glory, says always get in earlier than anyone else and leave later than everyone else and make sure your boss knows about it. Or it says get in as late as you can possibly get away with and leave as early as you dare as long as nobody notices and make sure that your boss doesn't know anything about it. It says put work first. Loyalty number one is to the company. It says always go for the next promotion. Always be pushing and on the lookout for a better job. It says side with whoever's going to win. Or it says do as little as you can get away with. Because all that matters is that you cash your cheque at the end of the month and get to go home and enjoy your life. But living for God's glory says, I will work hard. I will do the best job that I can every day because that's what God commands me to do. But I will never do it to the detriment of my faith or my family or as far as I can help it, my health. I will always tell the truth. I'll always own up whenever I make a mistake. I won't hide things. As I work each day, I'll try and actually get alongside people, particularly those who are struggling or or are on the outside. I'll consider passing up the next opportunity if that is going to have an impact on me living wholeheartedly for God's glory. And as I go about my day, I will always seek to share the truth and love of Jesus with whoever crosses my path. It totally transforms how we view work. How about another example? What about how we bring up our children? And please do hear me, this is not just for mums. This is primarily for fathers. Living for human glory says that the most important thing that I want for my children is firstly that they are healthy, then that they are happy, then they are successful. And in all of that, I want to make sure that I'm the one who gets the credit. So I protect them from anything that might hurt them. I make sure that they avoid anything that could disappoint them. And I push them academically and drive them to every after-school class that's available. I flaunt their achievements and my own on social media. And maybe in later years, I even hold it over them. Look at what I did for you. Or, and this is very rarely said, I want my kids to impact my life as little as possible so that I can sleep eat out and have just as much fun as before they were born. Now, some of those things are good and right desires to have for our children. Of course they are. But living for God's glory says that the single most important thing for my child is that they know and love the Lord Jesus and that they live for his glory too. So each day, You get up and you seek to model that to them. You pray for them every morning. You personally take responsibility for their spiritual growth. 
You get to know them. You take time to think ahead about what and how you should teach them from the Bible. And you partner with your spouse as you do that. You do these things every day, even when they don't want to. Maybe especially when they don't want to. And ultimately, at the end of each day, you put them in God's care. And you give all the glory for any fruit that comes to him. Living those ways, that is total devotion. It's hard. It is shameful in the eyes of the world. But it's living for the glory of God. Totally. And it's applicable to all areas of life. Because God is not just better than trucks. It's not just a three-year-old who needs to hear this. We all do. I have been deeply challenged by that this week. God is better than anything. The purpose of retirement is not just about going to the golf course every day. It's not about long lunches. It's not about getting the rest that you deserve. It's about living life for the glory of God. The purpose of school or college is not just to get your grades. And it's not just to hang out with your friends. It's about the glory of God. Serving in church is not to earn favor with God. And it's not to impress other people with your gifts. It's for the glory of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jesus was glorified. By that, he meant that he was going to die. Die to glorify God and draw us to himself. If you believe in him, will you live as he lived and died? In total devotion, glorifying God and then enjoying him forever. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, we ask that you would be merciful to us this morning, that you would work in each of our hearts, drawing those who don't yet believe in you to yourself, and for those of us who each day battle between living for our own glory and living for your glory. We ask that we would be totally devoted to you, living life, following our Lord Jesus, your Son, as our example living life as he did. We ask these things in your name. Amen.